Welcome to the Investing Experts podcast by Seeking Alpha. I am Nathaniel Baker, Senior Editor here at Seeking Alpha, joined today by Jay Mintzmeyer of the Value Investors Edge investing service that we have here on Seeking Alpha. Jay, thank you so much for rejoining the podcast. I know you've been on before. It's great to have you. Hey, uh, thanks for having me back on. It's it's great to return and, and talk a little bit about our investing process, the shipping market, and, and we'll see what else comes up. Yeah, looking forward to all of this because you're an expert, as you mentioned, on the maritime industry, oil tankers, things like that. Now, this industry is notoriously sickle. At least that's the understanding I have. Maybe there's some inaccuracies there you can clarify. But assuming it is cyclical, assuming that this is accurate, where in this cycle do you see us right now? Yeah, no, you're definitely correct that it's a cyclical industry and it's also a bit of a commodity. So you get even extra volatility in there. Um, you know, you can see rates move up three, four times and it doesn't necessarily impact the markets a lot, which, which makes shipping very interesting. And you said cyclical, which is correct. And when you first said it, I thought maybe, you, you, I think you misspoke and said sickle. And I thought that sounds a lot like fickle. And uh, so well, maybe it is fickle, and, is it? I don't yeah, know you tell me. yeah, I thought maybe it was a Freudian slip. I, some of these stocks can be a little bit fickle. So, and even my predictions can be fickle. So we'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit about where we are in the cycle, um, but keep take it with a grain of salt, right? Because well, I don't have my hindsight bias equipped yet. So Fair. look, shipping is really, it's not really one big segment. I think that's one of the common misnomers. There's really about five or six sub-segments of shipping that each have their own kind of independent cycles. And, and so I need to make that caveat before I kind of talk about where we are. So with container ships, was that was the big one, right? With, with post-COVID, the whole supply chain crisis. Um that one is pretty much played out. So, I mean, we're the, the World Series has ended. Um, <laughs> there's like a player strike going on. I mean, things are bad in that one. Um, if we look over to dry bulk, um, we're, we're there, people are warming up for the game. I mean, we're talking first inning at this hmm. point. But but there's a question of whether or not, and I got to stop with these awful baseball analogies, but whether or not the game's going to get rained out early because China just can't effectively reopen, right? So that's where dry bulk is at. Dry bulk is 100%. It's warming up. I mean, we're, we're definitely not top of cycle. We have a very promising supply demand outlook ahead of us, uh, but we're so dependent on, on China's reopening. And, and so far, it's been lackluster. Mm -hmm. On the tanker side of the business, um, we're mid game here. We're, I think we're somewhere between the fourth and sixth inning. I, I'll keep, sorry. I said I wouldn't, but I'll stay with the hey, they work. Out. So yeah, let's run with yeah, it. Yeah. One to nine folks. Nine's nine's the end of the cycle. One's the start. So tankers, I feel like we're somewhere between four and six. Uh, we got a little bit of a boost. We, we, we started the cycle early because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and what that caused it caused the European markets to scramble to get extra diesel, distillates, stock up on everything because they knew two things. One, they couldn't trust the Russian supplies anymore. And two, they knew sanctions were coming. So they kind of front ran those sanctions. They, they supported them out of one side of their mouth and front ran them out of the other. You know, So it, it was a, a dynamic tanker market. And then finally, the gas markets, thinking LNG, LPG. And those are different markets, but they're, they're similar in, in, in structure. And those are probably, uh, yeah, those feel like seventh, eighth, eighth and a half inning to me. Um, it, it, there's two different dynamics. In LNG, 
the same sort of Russia-Ukraine uh, dynamics that I talked about with tankers. Uh, in, Europe wanted to make sure they, they were secure on their energy, so they stocked up on a lot of that. Uh, there was There's a big order book, which means there's a lot of new ships coming, but they're not arriving yet. They're mostly arriving in, in mid-24 and onward, so that's when things are going to – that's when the game's over kind of for, for that market. For LPG, very similar, but the, the Panama Canal, it has a drought ongoing, which is restricting the amount of ships going through. And, and that's a temporary thing. I like the market, but I but the rates today are insane, and it's only because of the Panama Canal. So very long answer. Sorry about that. But we're all over the place, depending on what, si- uh, what segment you want to talk about. Oh, that's really interesting. Maybe let's focus on the ones that are a little more divorced from China, which sounds like it would be the LNG one. Is that is that a fair statement? Um, I, well, in this in this world and, and in China's involvement, I, I, nothing's really uh, divorced. But I think I, I think the segment that that is most promising to me, regardless of China, um, is probably the tankers. And then I also think uh, I think LNG has has potential outside of China, but the massive order book, which is forward supply, right, new ships coming online, I, I think make that segment really difficult to invest into. On the oil tanker side of things, I mean, every segment depends on China to some degree, but I, but I think the oil tanker demand story has a lot more of a global support base. It's not just a China story, whereas something like dry bulk, it, it's really heavily China based. And even LNG, it, it's very heavily based on Asian um, winter consumption for heating and, and in the summer a little bit for cooling and, and electricity. But electricity is kind of your base load. You, you see these seasonal swings. And it's really dependent on Asian weather patterns and Asian economic strength. And so even LNG, Nate, I agree with you. It's it, it, Europe is becoming a bigger part of that story. But but I think everything, you know, at some point connects. So you have to understand and follow China's economy if you're going to do much in shipping. So on the tanker side, obviously, they ship, you know, oil, right? And uh, so where, yeah, where are we in that cycle? You mentioned it at the top. We're kind of middle innings, you think? What are the dynamics going on there? Yeah, and of course, you know, I, I reserve the right to correct my answer in the future, but I, I think we're somewhere between inning four and inning six, right? Right, it's kind of smack in, in the middle there, and 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 tankers kind of come up with two components. There's product tankers, which carry the refined stuff, so gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, right? They call it clean, <laughs> clean, but you know, that's 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 the industry term. And then there's the dirty tankers, which which carry crude oil and, and, and distillates, the fuel, heavy fuel oil stuff, kind of, you know, tarry, nasty looking stuff, you know. And, and so those tankers are a lot larger. In fact, the main crude tanker is called a VLCC, very large crude carrier, carries 2 million barrels of oil. So we're, we're talking about a behemoth on the ocean there. Whereas some of these product tankers you know, carry 200,000 barrels or, you know, 300,000 barrels, still a pretty, you know, sizable ship, but, but much larger in, in scale. Um, those, both of those sides, both the clean products and the, and the dirty and the crude side um, really benefited. And I, you know, like be careful when I use a word like benefited or celebrated or something, but the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine really upended the dynamics of that market. And, and the market was already pretty tight. So, so I think a lot of people come away with the wrong. They say, oh, well, it's only strong because of that. Well, that's not necessarily true. The market was already pretty tight before that happened. But that was sort of the, the match that lit the, the gasoline or the tender or whatever you want to call it. And that fire has been raging. And, and the sanctions alone on, on product tankers have caused a lot of inefficient routes to develop uh, because a lot of Western Europe cannot trade 
directly out of Russian ports, which are right next to Western Europe, right? So they have to get the refined products either from the Middle East, which is a lot further, the U.S. Gulf, which is even further yet, or even from China, which is just like baffling. The fact that, you know, like, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to stiff it to the Russians, but we're going to buy all this stuff from China. So it's like, it's a really interesting dynamic in the market and it's making it less efficient. And anytime you have a market that's less efficient, that that's like artificial demand increase, right? Because of the, the ships being routed inefficiently. Right. And so then the the industry has to catch up and and create yep. new ships and, and do that stuff. And you're saying that, but that's already started seeing how it has been two years. Like yeah, they they, they finally, well, the funny thing is, well, not funny, but the weird thing is they didn't really respond in 2022. They just, they were all kind of like shell-shocked and they just sat on their hands and and nobody really ordered any ships, which was amazing. I mean, for us as investors, we're, we thought this was incredible. And they finally started ordering ships this year. And they have ordered quite a few ships this year, but none of them really arrive until 2026. Some of them even 2027. So if you look at... Yeah, and, it, and I have some charts we've went through in, in recent webinars, but one of the charts looks at the age of the fleet, like like eat, how many ships are underwater and, and divided by each year. We have some really granular data. And this is the oldest fleet balance for tankers in modern history. The, the average age of the fleet is like 11, 11 and a half years. Tankers usually last about 20 until they need to be recycled or refurbished or, or, or replaced. And, and the average age of the fleet is around 11. So 11 and a half, I believe. So that's the oldest it's ever been in, in modern history. I mean, this dates back 50, 60 years, oldest fleet. And you have the smallest order book in modern history, never been smaller. Um, the order book in some segments, like in, in, in VLCCs, which are those 2 million vessels we talked about, 2 million barrel vessels, uh, it, it, we're talking like 3%. We have one VLCC arriving in 2024. And I, we were projected to have one VLCC arrive in 2025. And I think they, they, they pulled some like strings at the yards and now it's two. <laughs> and, and just so you can put that in perspective, uh, Nathaniel, or do you go by Nate? Either one. All right, Nate. So just to put that in perspective, uh, a normal average year of VLCCs, if I go back 20, 25, 30 years, the average delivery year is anywhere from like 20 to like 35 or 40. And so you're going from 20 to 35 per year, and you're getting one next year, and you're getting two in 2025. At the same time, the fleet is the oldest it's ever been on record. Oh, and we haven't even gotten into environmental regulations yet. So, I mean, it is like, it's heating up. Yeah. Now, did I hear that right? You say 20 to 25 of these things are produced a year normally? Normally, that's correct. And this year, there's one. For uh, yeah, well, for next year, there's one. And and I'll pull up the chart as we start talking later. I'll, I'll pull up the chart so I can actually quote direct numbers. And I don't know if this is going to be posted as an article. You, you can even put a snippet of the chart that yeah. we have. But it, 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 these are pretty incredible numbers. Wow. And why is that? Are people are they expecting that the economy is going to fall off a cliff? I mean, why else would they not plan for this? Well, there's there's such a lag effect when you okay. order these vessels, and and wow. so usually it takes anywhere from two and a half to three three and a half years to build one of these vessels. So that when you look at 2024 and you see that there's only one ship coming, um, those would have been ordered in 2021 or even 2020. And so we were still in the midst of COVID and, and some countries like China were still under heavy lockdowns. Uh, an uncertainty abounded, right? And, and tanker rates were very poor. And, and, and not only that, there was a, such a focus, as there still is, on environmental you know, change and, and climate stuff and, and all that sort of uh, regulations. And so people say, I don't want to invest in this huge $100 million asset that has a 20-year lifespan. 
you know, I don't because I don't know what 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 the oil market's going to look like in 2035. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that makes sense, right? But but now we're here, and it's like, holy cow, we need 50 of these, and we have two or three, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely a dislocation. Interesting. So this kind of opens us up for the next question, which is the opportunities. Uh, now, I, you know, I, my first thought is who produces these tankers? Because it sounds like they would be like, who builds these things? It sounds like that might be an opportunity. But yeah, so but, but yeah, talk, talk us through this. Where are the opportunities? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I get that a lot. You know, who can I invest in the shipyards themselves? Yeah. Um, un- unfortunately, there, there's not really any I, I don't want to say reputable because these are reputable companies, sure. but but there's not really any great publicly traded uh, listings for these companies. Most of them are a lot of them now are in China, and most of them are like state backed or or pseudo state owned or controlled, and they're subsidized and and so like they're actually making a profit for like the first time in <laughs> twenty years. Like like times are actually finally good for shipyards. But they're like government pseudo agencies. You, you can't really invest. There, there's a couple Korean stocks that are kind of illiquid that are kind of com, com, uh, conglomerates, if I can get that word out of my mouth. Conglomerates, um, yeah. Conglomerates, yes. And, and, and so you can maybe look into that or there's like a Japanese firm that, that uh, Matsui, I think. And, and there's a couple of them. But but there, there's no real direct easy way, especially for a US or European investor. So long answer short, no, you can't really invest mm-hmm. in that. Hang on, let me ask you. I have to ask you something here because if you say they're in China and the whole supply chains, has that happened with the shipyards? Or it sounds like it's such a massive thing that they haven't really had a chance to even think about it. Well, the shipyard story is interesting because for decades, um, shipmaking has been kind of a, a loss making business and it's been sort of an industrialization, national pride. Um, the the con- uh, country subsidizes the shipyards to gainfully employ their workers, right? It hasn't necessarily been economic. So the U.S. got out of the shipmaking business 50 years ago, and then Western Europe got into it in, in, in kind of the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And then Japan just took over and dominated. And then Japan and Korea kind of fought back and forth over it. And then about 15 years ago, uh, 2005, 2006, 7, 8, 9, uh, China got into the game big time and they subsidized bigger than anybody else. They built yards bigger than anybody else. And and now China dominates the, the global shipmaking business, but it's never been about, it's never been commercial. And, and that's why, you know, people say, well, how did we let China do this? Well, it, it's, it's a total commodity thing. It's, it's pretty basic labor and it's usually loss making. So, you know, good for them. Right. But, but now I, I understand now it's like, well, this is kind of a national security thing. And like, uncertain economic conditions but that's that is what it is that the, the order books are all going to come from mostly china a little bit korea and a little bit japan and i agree i mean that 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 is kind of as an american citizen that's kind of a little unsettling yeah. i guess building these things maybe isn't one of these high touch things it's not building like building a, a, a chip or something like that you're building a boat which people have been doing for thousands yeah. of years right so it wouldn't be that yeah difficult to reshore it if you had to it'll just be a question of finding the space which we have and then doing making yeah. the the issue in the United States is it, the, the two big issues in the United States are, are the first one's like regulations and space, and, and you can get around that. Um, space is always hard because you need a lot of space for it. But but regulations you can get around that in an emergency. Um, the real issue in the United States is uh, the cost of labor, um, and, and we see that with some vessels. The U.S. doesn't make VLCCs, right? We don't make these two million dollar uh, barrel behemoths, but we do make smaller container ships. 
uh, for some of our Jones Act domestic lines. Like if you live in Hawaii or Alaska or Puerto Rico, um, you're probably familiar with companies like Matson and Pasha and, and Tote. And, and those are these like nationally protected companies that can only, <laughs> they have like a monopoly duopoly on the on these lanes and they can only use ships that are made in the United States that are crewed by American crew members and so forth. And let me just give you an example on cost. So during the container ship boom, a lot of the international companies were buying container vessels for roughly $60, $70 million a piece. And some of those had LNG dual fuel. They were more future-proof and all that sort of thing. Well, Madsen, U.S. company, decided we need to renew our fleet as well. And they bought very similar ships, LNG-capable, nice, nice vessels, high spec, but they're built in the United States. And everyone else is paying $80 million. Matson was paying between two fifty and three hundred all in per vessel. Same, I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't mean any offense to those shipyards, but it's pretty much the same ship. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, right. and that's the issue. There, Interesting. Dave. All right. Sorry for the sideway there. I just kind of piqued my curiosity. But all right. So moving on here, opportunities. Yeah. So you okay? So you can't you can't invest in the shipyards themselves, or only very difficult. But what? Where else? Where does it go from there? So for me, uh, in, in part of Valley Investors Edge, which is our overall research platform, uh, we founded that back in 2015. So we have uh, more than eight years of experience now exclusively in the maritime shipping sector. We cover 44 different stocks. And so we we follow them all across the cycles. And of course, you know, at any given time, a handful of those are avoids, a handful of those are maybe watched for later, and, and maybe, you know, a selection are buys. And so I just put that into context so folks understand that, you know, we are looking at the cycles and we are looking at the different timings of things. Um, I mentioned tankers as something I really like. And I, I mentioned that I think we're in inning four to inning six, somewhere between there. And when I look at the valuations of these stocks in the market, um, they're not deeply depressed, right? These aren't like total bargain basement stocks. And then they wouldn't be because the cash flows are strong and earnings are strong and the balance sheets have improved. But they also don't trade with much enthusiasm. In fact, some of these stocks trade at 20 to 30% discounts uh, just to the NAV, which is the value, net asset value, which is the value of all the ships minus the debt. And, and that's a pretty like kind of pessimistic valuation if you trade below just the carrying value of your ships. I mean, that, that's that's pretty disappointing if you if you trade below that. And, and most of them do. And, and I think the broad market, it's just more skeptical. I think the broad market is more focused on macro things. I think they're more focused on China specifically. And I think they're a little bit less dialed in than we are about the fleet profile, the upcoming deliveries. Like I, I don't think most folks really pay much attention to that until it matters, right? And so that, that's I'm prefacing that by saying like these aren't the biggest bargains in the world, but I do think there's a dislocation. And one of the stocks I've talked about a lot, and it's a big position of mine. I'm, I'm publicly long. I also have some options, so I'm just you know I'm talking my book here. Um, hopefully that's transparent. Is Scorpio Tankers ST and G, and they're U.S. listed, and they have one of the largest product tanker fleets in the world, and it's all modern. And that's that's one of the things I like the most about Scorpio Tankers. Uh, because they they don't need to replace any of their vessels anytime soon. I mean, they don't even they can get all the way up to like 2030s before they have to talk about fleet replacement or renewal. And so all they need to do is operate the ships and collect the money, pay off debt where they need to, and then return the rest to shareholders. And I think that's what they're going to plan on doing. And and Scorpio Tankers over the last year and a half has completely revitalized their balance sheet. Uh, year and a half ago, 
Um, and if you go back and look at the stock a year and a half ago, it was like 15 bucks or 13 bucks. And, and But the balance sheet was a disaster. I mean, it was borderline. We used to put in our research notes, like, be careful. There might be an equity raise. <laughs> you know? like, like these guys are in trouble. And, and, and they have completely revitalized their balance sheet. And now it's now it's pristine. It's it's about 30% debt to assets, uh, over 500 million in liquidity. Um, so all they really have to do now is operate the fleet. And they're doing steady share repurchases because of that 30% plus discount that I just mentioned. Right. Because it's like an arbitrage. You can you can uh, repurchase your shares at, at 70 cents on the dollar. It's basically like investing in your own fleet or growing your fleet at 70 cents on the dollar. And thankfully, their management understands that and they're doing that. Um, they've raised their base dividend a few times as well. I think there's probably special dividends in the near future. So, so that's number one, Nate. And, and I'm talking my book. I'm very long with this company, very much believe in that. Um, one other company, I've mentioned it publicly once or twice. It's a little bit more risky yet. So, so dial up the dial up the lever on this one. Um, this one has a little bit, I would say, of management concerns. Um, not that management is going to do anything nefarious. Like, you know, there's no question of, of the, the accounts of this company. There's no question of from, and, and, you know, there's nothing like that. It, it's just that it's a family kind of backed and operated firm. And so their capital allocation priorities aren't the same as like, I would say like a regular company. So don't expect, you know, if they make a lot of money, give, I'll give you a few examples, expect them to renew their fleet, expect them to grow a little bit. I don't expect them to pay out more than like 30, 40% of cash flow. They're going to reinvest. It's a family business. They're going to reinvest in it. They're going to grow in it. They want to be in tankers for another 50 years. And that's, that's what I mean about like family concerns and related parties and that sort of thing. Um, nothing nefarious that I've seen. I follow this company for actually more than 10 years at this point. It's called Zakos Energy Navigation, TNP. And, and I also have a very big position in this company as well. Um, one of my largest stock positions. I also have uh, some options. Uh, March 2024 is one of the, the strikes I'm I'm really uh, I'm really into right now on the on the options chain. Um, but this company trades at like twenty dollars per share, and their net asset value is sixty. Wow! So one third. Yeah. Yes, and the only reason it trades at twenty and not fifty is because of those concerns about the family and the management and all that. And, and, and I think a 60 to 70, actually it's closer to 70 at this point, I think a 70% discount is just way too high. If considering considering the issue, it, it's more that they wanna grow the fleet. It's not that they wanna, they're not incinerating money, they're not doing anything illegal, they're not doing anything nefarious. If they're doing nefarious and other things, then yes, there, there should be a massive discount. But I would say, you know, in my opinion, there should be a discount, Nate, but I think it should be maybe 20 or 30%, not 70. And so I think this is a fantastic opportunity for investors. We've ran some cases on this on this company, TNP. And in an average market next year, they're going to be worth $70. In a strong market, they're going to be worth over 100. This is NAV. I'm not saying where the stock's going to trade. But in an average market, their NAV is going to be about 70. In a great market, their, their NAV is going to be over 100. And in a terrible market, like, I mean, batten down the hatches, everything goes wrong. Their NAV is like 35 and the stock's 20 bucks a day. So I, I just think that's an amazing. So those are the two, those are my two favorites. They're both in tankers. They're both on theme. We, we can talk more about other stuff as well, but you asked my favorites and, and those are, those are. Two. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good one. Yeah. So we got uh, Scorpio tankers, STNG and Sakos. I believe the T is silent. Mm -hmm. 
not not up on my Greek. I believe it's yep, Greek. Yeah, right? yep. yeah, yeah. T S T. I'm sorry, T N P. Yeah, it's a couple of interesting uh, names there. Now, Sakos TNP, they that it is up twenty percent, twenty one or two percent over the last year, mm-hmm. as well as year to year to date, it's actually done better. It's up twenty eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scorpio is only it was pretty much flat over the last twelve months. I'm yeah. sorry, year to date, it's flat, and over the last yeah. twelve months, it's up like thirty percent. It just like baffles. It really baffles me, Nate, that it's flat year to date. But uh, Scorpio is more of a mainstream. You know, it's U.S. listed. Well, they're both U.S. listed, but but Scorpio is much more known. It has much more liquid of a stock float, and so I think I think Scorpio got a lot of interest earlier on, and, and you know I, I think that folks are just skeptical about this tanker market. They they don't believe it has legs, and I think I think that's what you're seeing in that year to date performance. And I hope. Because I'm invested very long, I, I hope that if we look back in six months or a year from now, we'll see that that outperformance resume. Yeah, I mean, to give you an idea, they announced a stock repurchase plan, which buy signal for anybody mm-hmm. back on August 15th, and the yep. stock barely moved. I mean, it was up a yeah. drip, and then it and then it dropped like a week later. Yeah, granted, you, that was you... during August, which was a bad month, as was September. But yeah, anyway. If you go through their their PRs, and we, we don't have time live here on the podcast, of course, but if you go through their PRs in the last 18 months, they've done like seven different huge buybacks. Uh, they've bought bought back about 15% of, of their float. I mean, these are, these are big buybacks. They're not just token. And and the market is just shrugging it off. And and, and that can't last. That's not going to last. Yeah. And so these you think these are all macro concerns that are, that are weighing on it? The China reopening story yeah. chiefly? Okay. Yeah, the interest, the persistence of interest rates, the weakness of the economy in Europe, uh, China, China instability. Yeah, I, I think that's all weighing on it. I don't, I don't think it's really related to tanker uh, market fundamentals, because because it doesn't make sense. Because if you were if you were basing this on tanker market fundamentals, uh, Scorpio tankers would be seventy five today and, and not fifty two, right? And Zacos would be forty and not twenty. I mean, so th- this there's there's obviously bigger picture macro concerns going on. Yeah. And on that, I mean, stocks are forward-looking indicators, I guess. And and what if the economy does fall off a cliff here or at least enter a recession over the next, you know, six to 12 to 18 months, which seems like a lot of people are talking now could happen. Um, what does that do then? Yeah, that that's always going to be a risk. And not just not just for the operating performance of the company, but it, as investors and traders, we're looking at the price of the stocks. Right. And, 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 you know, I'm not going to BS anybody. Like, if the whole market comes down significantly because of a recession, then almost all or all of the shipping stocks are also going to come down just by nature of, you know, the stock market coming down. Um, in, in terms of what, how much we're concerned about that, the first thing we look at is balance sheet strength and the shipping company balance sheets. On average, we cover 44 companies right now. On average, they are the strongest we've ever seen. And that's it. That's an hour, eight year history. We've also back tested uh, the tanker and some of the bulker companies, and, and they are indeed like the best in, of all time, or at least in modern history. And so right now, uh, just, just to give you an example, we have one firm that has negative net debt, so a net cash, which, which in a capital intensive industry like shipping, having net cash is totally unheard of. We have one company that's net cash, and we have three additional companies, so it'll, it'll be four total, that'll, that we project will be net cash by Christmas. And and the average uh, debt to assets across our companies is like 20, 28% or something like that. And, and normally in shipping, the average is over 50%. Well, it just makes sense. You know, you finance a ship half debt, half cash, that's 50%, right? And that's healthy. 50% is fine. But right now it's like 28%. And, and so the, the loans on these vessels are very small. 
And yes, interest rates are going up and, and that's that's a pressure, um, but the balance sheets are stronger than they've ever been. So, so I am not worried about like company ending events. You know, if macro goes down the toilet, yes, the stocks are going to fall. That's inevitable. But none of these companies are going to have to bankrupt, go bankrupt or restructure or, or dilute their equity. And, and that's what I think investors, because everybody understands, right? The um, rising tide lifts all boats and, and so forth. But what people are really scared of is, is bankruptcy and things like that. And, and that that fear, in my opinion, is completely off the table for the next few years. Okay. That's, that's wow. That's really bullish. All right. So you mentioned that you've been doing this for eight years. I mean, the kind of um, one of the questions that we like to ask is how you got into this and how you came to focus on shipping of all things. So yeah, talk us about your kind of origin story in investing. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, growing up as a as a young kid, I was always interested in, in transportation and trucks and airplanes and where's that thing going? What's in there? You know, and, and so I think subconsciously that kind of carried through as I went through college. I, I studied economics and I and I took a couple of electives on like international trade. Um, when I got my master's in, in public policy, I focused on international security and economic policy, and a lot of that focus I actually studied the uh, tr emerging trans-Pacific partnership which of course didn't happen, but that's what I <laughs> studied for my master's. And so, so I had that educational background that I think stemmed from a, from a personal interest, even as a kid. Right. And I think that kind of uh, came, came through on, on that process on the investing side of the house. Um, I was always kind of a self-taught sort of value-based investor, sort of almost like Ben Graham, uh, almost a little bit of Warren Buffett type stuff. And when I started my, my blog, it was really a hyped up, it wasn't even like a research platform. It was like a super blog. Um, I called it Value Investors Edge, which I'm glad I picked that name. I love that name. But but it, there's nothing about shipping in Value Investors Edge. Like shipping wasn't a focus. And I, I had a value-oriented blog for about a year. And I realized the stuff that I'm talking about with shipping is the stuff that people are the most interested in. And it's the stuff that's the most unique. Like you can't find this in anywhere else. And this was before Substack and all that, but you can't find any of this anywhere else on the internet. Or if you can, it's like very low quality and ours is better. Right. And it, but, but like if I was covering Apple or Walmart or Caterpillar or something, like there's other 10 other people that can do that. And so I think the personal interest combined with the ability to outperform in a segment ha has really, has really driven us in the shipping. And over the last eight years, um, we have long only model portfolios on Valley Investors Edge. And the first couple of years, we had track trades where I would say, hey, I, I'm going to buy this at this price and I sell it at this price. And I would track the averages of that. That got a little complex. It's harder for people to follow. So we switched to a long only model portfolio in 2019. So if you take the first three years of the track trades and you take the last five years of the model portfolio, that gives you eight years of, of you know performance tracking. It's not audited by the SEC. This isn't managed money, right? It's just a it's a portfolio, but people can see in, in real time. And, and, you know, I give updates of like what's in there and once a month. And, and our IRR over the last eight years is 43%, which is 16X over eight years. And, and that's, and it's all verifiable and tracked on the, on the platform. I, I'm not selling a financial resource product, a standard disclaimer insert here, you know, <laughs> but, but my point is that we've proven our ability uh, to outperform in this niche. And I don't think it's anything super special about myself or even our team. Like, I think if you plucked us out and put us into like tech or something, we wouldn't do anything. We'd be average at best. I think it's because of our sector expertise and we stay 100% in our lane. 
Like if you ask me today about like Amazon or Tesla, like we might joke about it for 10 seconds, but like, I don't have a serious opinion for you. Wow. All right. That's really interesting. I mean, that begs the question what your research process is like. I mean, without giving away too much of the farm, I guess. I mean, you do have a team there of, of folks that, that help you out. But yeah, what what kind of like what is a research process like? What yeah, yeah, you know, we we have a team of uh, six right now, uh, four uh, front facing sort of analysts and two guys who work kind of behind the scenes. And we're actually expanding, we're adding three people into our team uh, between now and Christmas. So yeah, no, we're we're in a growth mode. I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, in terms of the the research process, a lot of it is having that, you know, it, it's almost like a moat because we have that eight year, nine year experience. And I have a couple of guys that worked with me that have 15 years of experience in shipping. And so we have that mode of expertise of like, we kind of already know what's going on. We don't have to, every time a new press release comes out, we don't have to spend six, seven hours researching what it meant or like what, if someone buys a new ship, we know instantly what that means, right? We know Im immediately how big the order book is. We know what kind of impact that's going to have. Um, we have what's called a live analytics platform. And this is available for all of our members on, on Valley Investors Edge. And this tracks all the all the metrics of every single company that we follow, um, whether or not it's cash break evens, EBITDA break evens, cat, uh, earnings projections, um, leverage, debt to assets, uh, number of ships, age of ships. We have a, a tabs that have every single company's fleet, every single ship, the age profile, where it was built. Um, so we have all this data at our fingertips, and, and that's shared with our members as well. So I think when you combine the expertise, which which I actually have some of the least. Uh, I have eight years. Uh, well, I have eight years formally with VIE, and I have about fourteen total if you include the stuff before then. But but if you include all of our team's expertise, if you include the live analytics platform, and I think the third one is being well known in the industry and having that access to management. So I was just in Oslo this summer, uh, this June for Nor Shipping, and was able to attend the conference there and and had several meetings with companies in Oslo. In June, I was in Marine Money uh, in, in New York City. Uh, we had, I think it was 22 or 23 company meetings, uh, myself and, and Clement, who is our main shipping analyst. And, and, and having that, and we're about to host, I don't know when our podcast here, Nate, is going to go live, but in early to mid-October of 2023, um, we're going to host what we call a live interview series. And we're hosting 11 or 12 interviews with the CEOs or CFOs of companies that we follow. And those are going to be live and, and our members can join on the call immediately. They can ask questions uh, during the call um, and, and then we'll, we'll get some transcripts and recordings out later. So so I think the combination, right, that experience, the understanding, that live analytics platform that we've built out and the access to these companies to be able to talk to them point blank and ask them what's going on and ask for their insights. I think those I think there's probably more than those three, but I think those three things are, are really what give us an edge and really go into our research process. And the, the rest of the stuff, I, it's the same as anybody else's. I'm not going to bore you with it. We read financial statements. We read SEC filings. We do all that kind of stuff. That That's all a given. But those three things are kind of the, the extra. Huh. I mean, the the fact that you're, so you're doing this interview series, and I, obviously the CEOs agreed to do this, even though it's behind a paywall. So, that, I mean, this from a media industry perspective, that's an interesting model there. This is the first one, you, you, this is the first time you're trying this, right? Uh, no, actually we, we started it. Yeah, well, we started it in, in, in 2020, right before COVID. And because of COVID afterwards, that sort of, and then people saw that it was professional product and stuff. Because of that, that kind of ignited the product. And we do it now about twice a year. Um, so I haven't 
I, I should I should count up and see how many I've done. But I'm pretty sure that when I kick this series off in a few days, um, it will be triple digits. It'll, it'll probably be my 105th interview or something like that. But the companies agree to it for a couple of reasons. I, we don't have to unpack this too much. But first of all, they've they've seen them before and they've seen that the questions are, I would say, tough, but fair. I, I don't I'm, there's no gotcha questions. Right? I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. Um, but they, but they see that they're questions from genuine investors who are asking, I hope they're intelligent questions, but they're, but they're asking more deep, intelligent questions about the industry. Whereas on a quarterly conference call, which is what these executives are used to, um, the questions are all very like modeling or like, you know, like what might impact your earnings by four cents next quarter? What was that? You know, like, like these really in the weeds things that don't really matter. And I think our interviews are a little bit more focused on the big picture dynamics of the industry. And then we drill down into capital allocation and we say, well, what are you going to do with this money? Where's this going? And I think, I think they like to talk about, I think companies like to talk about themselves, <laughs> you know, like, like they like to I'm going to share our strategy. And I think they like that. And, and the second thing is it's, you're right. It's behind a paywall. It's exclusive for our members, but Seeking Alpha has been such a great support as well. They get us a transcript that goes with it. I, I edit and curate the recording. And then if we have some good ones that I think are timely, then they become public later on, like a podcast. And, and so and so that benefits everybody. It benefits the wide audience. It benefits Seeking Alpha. It, and it benefits the companies that that are so lucky to have been selected to go public. And, and, and so maybe I'll do 12 interviews and I'll bring five or four or five public. And so, so that's kind of, I would say, like, it's kind of unspoken, but that, that's kind of the carrot at the end of the stick. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it kind of begs the question, what other industries might be uh, ripe for this type of thing, but that's not, we don't yeah. have to get into that. Yeah. Well, just, just to say, I, I think a lot of them would be, but I think, I think, I think the team, the marketplace teams, I, I think, I think the investing groups at Seeking Alpha, some of these investing communities are best positioned to do this, but I, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of passion, it takes a lot of effort. Um, and, and so I'd love, I'd love to see it. Um, and one thing we do, Nate, and I, I know we're venturing off the path a little bit, but I think this is relevant to our research process. Um, either myself or my main shipping analyst, Clement, is on every single earnings call. And, and we actually ask questions on most of the earnings calls. So there's a couple of companies that, that are uncomfortable with that. And, and so we just listen. But I would say almost 90% of the companies that we follow, we cover, we're on the earnings call live asking questions. And I, I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you mentioned that these, you, you track every, every vessel that every one of these companies has. How many, what is that typically? What's the, what's the total number of these vessels that, that we're talking about? Yeah. So, so all in all, it's, it's around 2,500 vessels uh, that we track and, and we, we pay and, and subscribe to a service that gives us real-time vessel valuation data for every single one of these ships. And we actually have it uh, set up as an API. So it's like automated updates in our models and everything. Uh, and then we also have a tab, which we, we don't necessarily share the exact value of every single vessel because that's exclusive proprietary, like that's from the API, but we have the information on every single vessel. And you can go, you can click, we have, it's like bulk, tankers, gas ships, and you click the tab and it's all these charts and all these lists of every single, so you can quickly, I mean, in, in two or three minutes, you can figure out like basically who's who in the entire industry. Is there like a live map there where you can see that the tankers kind of moving around on the... Um, Vessels Value, which is a fantastic product that we subscribe to, has something like that. Um, we we don't have it because that we we'd have to have enterprise data sourcing and and so. But 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 it, such a map does exist, 
And it, it's really cool. I don't know if it has much investment value, but it's really cool to click on it and be like, there's my ships. Yeah, yeah. I guess if something goes wrong, it has investment value. Well, whoever can whoever can get that information first, like if a tanker runs, but how often do accidents happen? Like in these, I mean, we know the big ones. Very, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it, it's actually a very, very safe industry. Yeah. yeah, there's not very many accidents now. And weather doesn't affect it. Like whether if there's, a, I mean, I guess if there's a hurricane, maybe they have to stay away, but otherwise- Well, like, there's-, there's a storm, yeah. Yeah, the, well, the storms slow things down, which if anything is kind of bullish because it kind of artificially kind of slows down the supply, right? But 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 storms, you know, but there's such good prediction and projection of storms now, and the ships are very uh, well built and well trained and crewed, and and so and so you don't really hear about these big storm disasters anymore. Uh, most of the ships are, are moored in a safe port, or they stay a hundred miles away, or you know, so so we we haven't. There's not really. It's a very safe industry, and 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 it's kind of like when an airplane crashes, it's like national news, right? Um, it's similar with shipping. Anytime there's a big shipping disaster, like it's all over the news. But it's like, I told you, we track 2,500 ships roughly. Those are just the publicly traded companies that we follow. Globally, we're talking 30, 40,000 ships. And so even if there's like a five pirate hijackings and 10 groundings and four explosions, and I mean, you're talking about a percent of a percent of a, I mean, it's like, it's like when you fly with an airline, it's the safest way to travel. Wow, this is a fascinating conversation. Jay Mintzmeyer, thank you for joining the Seeking Alpha Investors Edge uh, podcast. I'm sorry, Investing Experts podcast. Your thing is called the Value Investors Edge, and it is available on Seeking Alpha. And uh, the website is seekingalpha.com slash author slash J dash Mintzmeyer. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And and how else can people find you and follow you and find out more about your stuff? Yeah, fantastic, Nate. Thanks thanks for having me on today. Um, the, the number one way to follow me for free is on Seeking Alpha. You can just follow my author page there. Um, I'm also very active on uh, formerly known as Twitter <laughs> on, the, on the big X there. So you can follow me. I'm at Mincemeyer. And then finally, if you want to learn more about our research platform, um, I've made it simple for you. I got a website that redirects right to the landing page. It's mincemeyer.com. Um, so if you can spell my last name, that's the challenge. But if you can spell my last name, mincemeyer.com, that'll take you straight to the Seeking Alpha landing page and it'll give you all the information you might want to know about our research. Yeah, there's platform. many ways to spell mincemeyer, but yours is M I N T Z M Y E R, right? Okay. That's correct. I that's put correct. it right in my notes and that's great. You got it. Nailed awesome. it. Checked it. Well, thank you for listening to the Investing Experts podcast. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. At times, myself or the guests may own positions in the securities mentioned. Jay disclosed all his positions. I do not have any positions in any of the stocks that were mentioned today. And you can follow Jay Mintzmeyer's Value Investors Edge and Investing Experts on Seeking Alpha, where you will also find full transcripts of all podcast episodes. To take full advantage of Seeking Alpha, become a premium subscriber. Learn more at seekingalpha.com slash subscriptions. Check it out. We'll see you there. With that, thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Jay for coming on. We'll speak to you next time.